0: to serve the Lord's Supper to our deacons and uh, pray for each one of them as I do that I haven't got to do that in a year and a half and man it felt good to be able to do that this morning so praise the Lord for um, for these privileges Luke chapter 12 starting in verse 8 that's where we're at this morning essentially wraps up a series of messages that have all really been connected going all the way back to chapter 11 verse 14. Uh, if you remember back at the beginning of July, we saw the passage where the Pharisees saw Jesus cast out a demon and they accused him of doing exorcisms by Satan's power. And that was the accusation that they laid at Jesus' feet. Uh, and then he goes to lunch at a Pharisee's house just a few verses later and. He comes down on them uh, really hard with three woes that he pronounces upon them, and then there's lawyers there who are thick as thieves with the Pharisees, really belong to the same party, and he he pronounces the same uh, doom upon them, three woes upon them, and then last week he warned his disciples about hypocrisy, particularly the hypocrisy of identifying with Jesus, Um, the hypocrisy of of saying publicly, Jesus, uh, i, I, I got to keep my distance, but privately you want to identify with him and be uh, intimate with Jesus and, and know Jesus and be his friend and be his follower. So he warned them against that sort of hypocrisy. And this morning's text is directly connected to all three of those events between Jesus and the Pharisees. It kind of wraps it up. Uh, Matthew actually places this morning's passage right after the accusation from the Pharisees that Jesus is casting out demons by Satan's power. There is a common thread that runs through all of these passages that I've just mentioned. So from chapter 11, verse 14, all the way to, to chapter 12, um, verses 8-12 through 12 that we're looking at this morning, there is a common thread, and the common thread is this. Uh, it's an emphasis on the relationship between the heart and the mouth. Okay, there's got to be a connection between the heart and the mouth. There is a connection. And uh, all of these passages I mentioned have to do with the heart and the mouth in some way uh, or another. The Pharisees used their mouths to accuse Jesus in chapter 11, verses 14 through 28. And what we know is that what comes out of their mouth is actually just a product of their heart. Back in Luke chapter 6, all the way back there... Um, Luke 6 verse 11 says, but they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. This was after Jesus told them that there is no problem with picking heads of grain on the Sabbath. Well, they're enraged and they start plotting even then what they want to do to Jesus. So when they accuse him with their mouths of being partnered up with Satan, that's just a product of what was already in their heart. Jesus condemns them when he's pronouncing these woes upon them for saying one thing with their mouths, doing another with their behavior. He does this in particular with the lawyers when he says you add on to God's word with man-made tradition and then you have no intention in your own heart of following through with the things that you have added on. And then Jesus warned last week that the words we speak in private are going to be public uh, on the day of judgment. And this emphasis culminates this morning with probably the most grave warning that Jesus offers up in all of the scriptures, in all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One of the most heavy um, phrases that he, he speaks with his mouth in his ministry on this earth. We see it this morning. It's a grave, grave warning. And it really is right in line with the rest of the Bible. Because in the Bible, there is always a consistent emphasis on the heart and the mouth. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Meaning, what comes out of your uh, life is a result of what's in your heart. Matthew 12, verse 33 Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And then in Luke 6, 45, Jesus said, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. So if there's faith in our hearts, what's going to come out of our mouths? That's a question for us this morning. And on the other hand, what happens when what comes out of your mouth is so blasphemous and opposed to the work of the Holy Spirit that it actually exposes a condemned heart? What happens when the heart's filled with good things? How will the Holy Spirit work through a heart like that? So uh, these are the questions we'll look to answer this morning. We have... Two warnings from Christ here, okay? Two warnings, and then one great encouragement. Because the second warning is so brutal that I think the Lord was good to give us one great encouragement afterwards. So let me read for us Luke uh, 12, starting in verse 8. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. We start with our first warning from Jesus in verses 8 and 9. Warning number one. If your faith is true then it will move from your heart to your lips. Now, you might say, that that sounds encouraging. That's great. If my faith is true, it will move from my heart to my lips. Well, that's also a warning because if your faith is not moving from your heart to your lips, what does that say about your faith? Saving faith will go from the heart to the mouth. This is what Jesus is saying in verses 8 and 9. If you fear God, if you have trust in His Son, then you will confess His Son before men. You will not be so afraid of people like the Pharisees that you refrain from confessing Christ. You won't let the fear of men overcome your confession of faith. On the other hand, if you do let the fear of men overcome your confession of faith, what does that say about what is actually going on in the heart? Here's what Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 says. Paul says, Uh, That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So if you believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead, what Paul is saying is you will be saved. And part of this faith of the heart is going to be a confession with the mouth. If there's true faith in the heart, there will be a confession with the mouth. If there is a refusal to confess with the mouth, then there's no saving faith inside. We're not saved through good works. We're not saved through church membership. We're not saved even through knowing facts from the Bible. We are saved by the grace of Jesus and true saving faith in Him. And that faith is not to be kept in secret. We're not to be putting bowls over the lamp. We're not to be sliding the candle under the bed. We're not to be hiding away our confession of Christ as Lord. If you never want to be public about your faith, you never want to be public about your faith, but you still claim to be a believer, you're committing the very sin of hypocrisy Jesus warned about last week. And it doesn't bode well for what's going on in the heart. It doesn't say good things about our eternal salvation. On the other hand, here's here's the the other side of the coin from Jesus in verses 8 and 9. If we confess Christ, then we find out Jesus is going to confess us. Which is amazing. That that we'll uh, appear before the judgment seat of Christ and Jesus will say, I confess His name. I confess her name. And what he's doing there is he's confessing that they are mine. They belong to me. They confessed me before the world, and I confess them before the Father and all of the angels. And we should should long to hear that. It, It should be a motivating factor, really, in overcoming any potential fear of man that you have. You know, it's like if I'm trying to get my kids to do something that I told them to do, you can always break out the phrase that every parent loves. You know, why do I have to do it? Because I told you so, right? Every parent loves that phrase. But let's be honest that um, we also as parents should love the joy of reward. And so it's good not just to say because I told you so, but also to point out the rewards that come with obedience. Even if those rewards are very basic things like getting to eat food and breathe in the house. You know what I mean? It's good to point out the rewards that they receive. Well, this is a lot better than just eating food and breathing in the house here. Jesus is saying that if your faith goes from your heart to your mouth, you are not afraid of men, and you fear God over man, and you confess me before the world. I will say your name before the Father and all the angels. This is an immense reward. We can't even put words to it. But if we do not confess Christ and we deny Him, then He will deny us on the day of judgment. And as much as we might long for Him to confess our name, we should be equally terrified at the idea of Him denying our name. Because if he denies us in front of the Father and denies us in front of all the angels, what that means is we have no saving faith. We have no hope. We receive no mercy. We are workers of iniquity. We will depart from him as workers of lawlessness into a Christless eternity. And in light of that, you ought to leave here today absolutely determined to do away with any disconnect between your heart and your lips. Warning number two. If we blaspheme the Spirit with our lips, our hearts will be condemned. You see this in verse 10. Verse 10 is a verse that's had a lot of ink spilled over it in church history. So we ought to be able to deal with it in about 10 minutes here. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Now, this verse, the reason it stands out to us is because we're not used to seeing the Bible say you can't be forgiven of something. Like, whenever we read the Bible, we get used to this idea of sin is bad, but if you repent of sin, you'll be forgiven of sin. I mean, that's the rhythm of the Bible, 99 times out of 100, right? More than that, 999 times out of 1,000, But in this instance, Jesus says there is a sin you cannot be forgiven of and will not be forgiven of. Now I'm going to give us some time on this. Let's start with some speculation over the years of what this could mean, okay? Some have said this is a sin that could only be committed during Jesus' time on the earth. You really don't even need to worry about it now. And the problem with that is that when he says everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man seems pretty general. He's not just talking, it seems like, about his generation, but about the generations of mankind to come that will read these words. Others have said that this is the sin of unbelief, and it's unpardonable if it carries on all the way to death. So the blasphemy of the Spirit is to not believe all the way until you die. That's what I was taught in youth group. Okay, That's a pretty standard uh, interpretation that some have. All right, I would say there's probably two main interpretations of the verse. That's one of the main interpretations. Now, that's what I believed most of my Christian life. But here's the problem with it. Here, here's why I ended up moving off of it. It's because it's just not in the passage. You totally have to read that into the passage. You have to bring that to the table, and you have to kind of presuppose it onto the words as the right interpretation. Some have argued this is the sin of apostasy committed by true believers. Somebody's a believer, they depart from the faith, they lose their salvation, they cannot get it back. The problem with this is, again, you have to read it into the passage, plus you have uh, a, a, a heap of other verses that tell us you cannot lose your salvation, so we can rule that one out. So if it's not any of that, what is it? What is the unforgivable sin? Well, I think in the context, okay? Context is always so important. In the context of the way the Pharisees have acted, and what they have done, and and think about where Matthew places this bit about the unforgivable sin. He puts it right after the Pharisees look at Jesus and say, you cast out demons by the power of Satan. That's where Matthew puts it. So in light of that, I think we can define it in this way. The unforgivable sin is exceptionally hateful, willful and slanderous rejection of the Holy Spirit's work in testifying to Christ as the Son of God. The unforgivable sin is exceptionally hateful, willful and slanderous rejection of the Spirit's work in testifying to Christ as the son of god so let's unpack that um first of all let's recognize that the holy spirit loves to glorify the son jesus okay in john 16 verses 13 and 14 jesus says but when he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth i love that if you want all the truth then you need the holy spirit holy spirit will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative. Isn't that interesting that the third person of the Trinity says, I'm not here to speak for me. So who is he speaking for? It says, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. So the Spirit wants to glorify the Son. The the Spirit wants to reveal the truth of the Son to us. He wants to disclose it to us. He hears what is to come. He reveals that to us. So the Spirit glorifies the Son. The third person of the Trinity glorifies the second person of the Trinity. And part of the way he does this is by revealing Jesus the Son to unbelieving hearts. There's not a person here who would know Jesus the Son unless the Spirit of God had revealed it to them. That's the only reason you would ever know Jesus is because the Spirit reveals Jesus to you. John 15 verse 26 says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will do what? Testify about me. Even after Jesus ascends into heaven and he tells the apostles to go to Jerusalem, what are they going there to do? Well, they're going there to spread the message of Christ and to start the church. But before they do that, they've got to wait on something. Acts 1 verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So, they, they're going to go they're going to start the church they're going to be witnesses but before that can happen they have to have the holy spirit they have to have the power of the spirit in order to be witnesses so even after jesus ascends to the father and he leaves and he goes and and um, waits until the time when he's going to return it's the spirit who is empowering the witness of the church it's still the spirit who's revealing jesus so not only would you not know Jesus if the Spirit had not revealed them to you, you wouldn't be able to tell anybody else how to know Jesus unless the Spirit empowered your witness to be able to tell them. You see how the Spirit is just all about making the Son look glorious? So Jesus here is referring to a sin that has the blasphemy of that Spirit at heart. And it's a sort of blasphemy that seems to be worse in nature than your kind of generic blasphemy. Don't get me wrong, okay? Generic blasphemy, still bad. Still really bad. Right? It's it's one of God's Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Blasphemy is when somebody takes the name of God, which should be reserved as holy, right? Hallowed be your name. And instead, they use it in a flippant way. They use it like a cuss word. They use it to express surprise. They use it to express their frustrations. It should only be used reverently. They use it casually. If not perversely. That's evil. It will not go unpunished. The book of Revelation tells us blasphemers will be cast into the lake of fire punishable by eternal death. So blasphemy is really, really horrible, and yet this is a form of blasphemy that seems to be even worse. This blasphemy of the Spirit that Jesus speaks of, he says, will not be forgiven. That's serious, so we better know what it is. Well, taking all of the context into account, the actions of the Pharisees in the preceding verses, everything we know the Spirit does in glorifying Jesus, I think we can draw some conclusions. I do believe that when Jesus refers to the blasphemy of the Spirit, He's referring to a sin of unbelief. But it's a very specific type of unbelief. It's an unbelief where, A, somebody's got clear knowledge about who Jesus is and the fact that the Holy Spirit is working through Him. They know. And yet, they are willfully rejecting the facts about Jesus that they know to be true. And then they blasphemously slander the Spirit by attributing His work to Satan. Is this not the sin that we see the Pharisees commit and then Jesus right after that says this? They know who Jesus is these guys have been around the church okay not the church as we know it, the new testament church but they've been around church all right their whole lives they've been going to synagogue their whole lives these guys were raised in the synagogues these guys run the synagogues they know what they're seeing out of jesus this isn't just your typical this isn't just another rabbi In fact, I would say that they probably haven't seen too many rabbis that didn't even go through the steps of ordination, right? Just the people laid hands on Jesus, and they said, you're a rabbi. They probably haven't seen too much of that, and then, of course, they haven't seen too much of people going around healing people on command, casting out demons, teaching with this sort of authority, standing up in the synagogue and saying, this thing you just read off this scroll, it was fulfilled in your hearing because I'm here, right? They hadn't seen all this before. And they had to know, I mean, God's doing something here, but they didn't like it. It threatened their position, they felt like. It threatened their ability to, to do the things that Jesus talked about a few weeks ago, to go around and glad hand in the marketplaces and have that great seat in the synagogue. They didn't like the fact that somebody was being loved more than them and teaching differently than them, and so they were willfully rejecting it. No matter what, they had made up in their minds, we don't care what we see from this guy, we hate him. And then they took that last step to say, you're a partner of hell. They looked at the Son of God and said, you are are a a partner of hell. Your power is from the evil one. Here is what Wayne Grudem argues about somebody like this. In such a case, the hardness of heart would be so great that any ordinary means of bringing a sinner to repentance would already have been rejected. Persuasion of truth will not work, for these people have already known the truth and have willfully rejected it. Demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit to heal and to bring life will not work, for they have seen it and rejected it. Grudem goes on to say that it's not that the sin of the blasphemy of the Spirit is so bad that Jesus' blood is not strong enough to cover it. Instead, the person's heart is so hard, they are now beyond repentance. Their unbelief is so bad, they have cut themselves off from the means of salvation that God has provided. Hebrews 6 talks about this sort of unbelief. If you want to see it in a different place in the Bible. Hebrews 6, starting in verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. We're talking about somebody who has some spiritual understanding. They've even had a little taste of heaven, been a partaker of the Spirit. That's not to say they were saved. What that means is they were around the truth enough and around enough saved people to have a little taste and do a little partaking. You hang out with the church long enough, you'll, you'll receive some of the benefits of the Spirit. Like, let's say you're not a believer, you're in the church, okay, and we know that happens. Jesus teaches us there are, are tares among the wheat, goats among the sheep. So you're in the church, you offend somebody, you're not a believer, and you offend a believer. In the world, that person might cut you off forever and say, you're dead to me. You offended me, you're dead to me. And not how the world works? You're, you're canceled, right? We don't just cancel celebrities, right? We'll cancel people, just regular old people. But in the church, you offend somebody, and the person goes, well, I offended God, and by the blood of Jesus, he forgave me, so I'll forgive you. Even though you're an unbeliever, have you not just received some benefits of being around the church, getting a little taste of the truth there? These are people who have been around it. They've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. It's like the Israelites in the desert. They heard God speak through Moses. They saw His power on display, but they still complained and they failed to trust God and believe God at His Word. And so the author of Hebrews says these folks are beyond repentance. I I cannot see a reason to think that the sin of Luke 12, verse 10, and the sin of Hebrews 6 are not the same. That in Hebrews 6, we're not talking about the same sort of blasphemy of the Spirit. The same sort of blasphemous unbelief. This is a grave thing to consider. A soul being beyond grace. And again, the timing of Jesus' teaching cannot be ignored. It certainly seems the Pharisees who accused Jesus of partnering with Satan who attributed the work of the Holy Spirit to the powers of hell have either committed this grave sin or are dangerously close, and this is their last warning. Now, I know what there's got to be at least six people in the room, okay, who are going, well, what if that's me? And then there's six more who just also think the same thing but don't want to be honest about it. I was a student pastor for seven and a half years, and there are certain theological questions you get from teenagers, and this was one that I got often. Because they would read this passage, and it would kind of shake them up, and they go, well, what if I've committed that sin? And my response is this. If you're seriously worried about that this morning, you probably haven't. Because your heart's anxiety over the idea of not being reconciled to God through Jesus shows you are not beyond repentance. You're concerned about your sin. You're concerned about your offense, your possible offense before Jesus. You have faith in Jesus to forgive it, I hope. You are very much a candidate for grace. The concern with, uh, would come with someone who reads this and goes, Well, who cares? i understand who jesus says he is i see the power of christ at work i don't care i reject him i classify him as evil because it fits the agenda of my heart i can continue to do what is right in my own eyes if i don't have to bow down to him i don't care who he reveals himself to be who the holy spirit reveals himself to be i reject him and i classify him as the enemy This is the position of the Pharisees in Matthew 12 and in Luke 11, and God forbid it would ever be our position. But don't you see that the warning here is still about the relationship between the heart and the lips? Pharisees didn't accuse Jesus of partnering with Satan out of nowhere. It was a ludicrous accusation born out of a hardened heart that was seared to the point that they would say anything to deny the reality of who this man was so we got to keep this in mind I, I think some people are around the church they sit under biblical teaching they even catch some of the blessings of grace by proxy but in their minds they say i'll repent one day i'll surrender to to jesus one day i'll give my total devotion to jesus one day To assume that your heart will always be in a position to repent is a dangerous game. I mean, first of all, tomorrow's not promised. And and I just see no evidence that there is a second chance to repent after death. I had a friend ask me that one time. An unbelieving friend said, you know, my grandmother died and my my aunt is arguing with my mother and my aunt saying that there's going to be a second chance for my grandmother or my mother saying there's going to be a second chance for my grandmother to repent when she gets to heaven and my aunt saying no, that doesn't exist and what do you think it is? That's a heavy question for somebody to ask you and so I kind of hemmed and hawed and then finally I said, I just got to tell the truth. And I looked at my friend and I said, I just don't see any shred of evidence in the Bible that there's a second chance to repent after you die. So that's the first reason why you don't want to play that game. But secondly, you might have a few thousand more tomorrows, and in those tomorrows, your heart grows darker and darker every day and even more in love with sin. And you end up in a place where you're denying what can be plainly seen about Jesus. In a place where you are even counting Jesus as evil so you can continue on in your own sin and call it good. In a place where your blasphemous unbelief has left you beyond hope. This is why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today. Don't mess around. The Holy Spirit is revealing the truth about Jesus to you today. You better respond to it today. Don't know what tomorrow holds. Don't presume upon the mercy of God. Repent and trust Christ now. I told you the second warning was heavy, so let's end with one massive encouragement. All right. The Spirit will bring the faith of your heart to your lips when you need it. What's the opposite of somebody who is obstinate in their unbelief and slanders the Holy Spirit of God? What's the opposite? It's somebody who responds to the work of the Spirit by surrendering to the Son and believing Him with saving faith. And that's what Jesus is saying in verses 11 and 12, that if the enemies of the gospel drag you into a place where you are in jeopardy because of your confession of Christ, all right. if you make that choice, I don't fear man over God, I fear God over man, I will confess Him before the world, and that gets you dragged into a situation where you are in danger because of your faith, or where you just need to give a defense of it, that the same Holy Spirit who loves to glorify Jesus will glorify Him through you in that moment and give you the words to say. The Spirit who brought faith to your heart in the first place will bring that faith to your lips. You actually see Him do this in Acts 4. Verses 8-12. through Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be made known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name uh, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which uh, which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, and then he gives this brilliant defense. A fisherman, right? Who, when he turned 12, was probably told by a rabbi, Son, you did a good job here learning your, your, the, memorizing the first five books of the Old Testament and learning your good theology, but you're not going to cut it as a rabbi. Go back to your father's trade. And that guy, that fisherman, stands up here and the Spirit gives him the words to say. Paul goes before Felix in Acts 24, goes before Festus in Acts 25, Agrippa in Acts 26. And in every to- uh, case, he doesn't just have the words to say, but he speaks powerfully, he speaks logically, he testifies, he appeals to them. And it should be no surprise to us that the Spirit is doing this in the book of Acts because again, He loves to glorify the Son. And He wants to help you do that in the crucible as you go about being a witness for the Lord Jesus. But there's an implied truth here in this encouragement. And the implied truth is that if you are going to be a witness, you're going to have to use your words. A lot of times people say, well, I witness with my actions good you have to that's good winning people over with your conduct is biblical but there's going to come a time in which you're going to have to use your words and you're going to have to preach now when i say preach i'm not talking about hitting somebody over the head with the bible or getting up on a soapbox in the break room at work when i say preach i mean you're going to have to testify to the truth about god's son at some point to somebody if they're going to be saved faith comes through hearing the lost have to hear But the good news from Jesus here is that the Holy Spirit will give us the words when we need them, especially in times where we are under the threat of persecution. The Spirit is working in us and using us in the heat of witnessing to a lost and dying world. You have a responsibility in this, though. It's the Spirit's work, but you have a responsibility in this. Because here's the thing about Peter and Paul. They were men... Who took the word of God seriously? Peter took the word seriously. He walked with the word in the flesh for three years. And when Jesus looked at him after restoring him, after his denial, and said, Feed my sheep, he took that seriously. That became the call of his life to feed the sheep of Jesus with the word of Jesus. Paul was a man who loved the word and and, and loved it with bad intentions with a bad zealousness as a Pharisee, and then he was saved, and that love of the Word was transformed, and now he had the intention to truly glorify God. These were men who prayed. These are men who knew their Bibles. These are men who gathered with other believers and worshipped. These are men who filled their hearts with the truth of God. And so why I'm saying this is, if we want to be used in the same way Jesus is talking about here, then we're going to have to do the same as Paul and Peter. We need to love the Word and study it. We need to memorize it. We need to fill our hearts with its wisdom. We should pray prayers filled with words of the Bible. We should pray the Psalms. We should pray the prophets. We should gather with other believers like we're doing this morning and and learn the Word together and talk about it and help one another apply it in how we live. Because here's what you're doing when you do this. You're digging a canal in your heart. Every time you open that Bible and you study it, every time you get on your knees and pray, every time you gather with the local church, you're digging a canal in your heart. And what's going to happen when you stand up before the enemies of the gospel to give a defense, whether it's one or it's a thousand, what's going to happen is the Spirit will fill that canal with the things that you have learned he will call them to mind. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a conversation where I'm sharing my faith with somebody and in that conversation, God calls to mind something from some sermon from like 2001 that I didn't even remember hearing and I go, oh yeah, that's right. You ever had that happen before? He, just, he calls it to memory? But you've got to sit under the teaching for that to happen. You've got to have your Bible open for that to happen. You've got to be on your knees praying for that to happen. You dig the canal, the Spirit's faithful to fill it up. I'm going to close it this way, this morning. There's a man who was checking into a hotel in Japan. He was really, really hungry. He slept through the meal on the flight. On his way to the hotel, he's about to walk in. He sees this tree outside. It's got these nice, round, golden apples on it. He made note of it. He was like, man, I'm hungry. Those apples look good. Dropped his bags in his room, took a shower, headed down for his first meeting. Still no time to eat. Not going to be able to eat till after the meeting. So on his way out of the hotel, he decides, I'll be adventurous. He grabs an apple off the tree. Doesn't even have water. Just wipes it off with of the shirt, takes a bite of it. That's how hungry he was. And to his shock, it was not an apple, it was a pear. So he goes back in the hotel because he's so bewildered. He said, this is an apple, but it tastes like a pear. What is happening here? And the people at the counter say, Well, actually, that's called a crunchy golden apple pear. And we grow them here in Japan. And please don't take fruit off of our tree, because we use that for breakfast in the morning. The tree was able to fool the man. It fooled him. Until he tasted the fruit. Because once he tasted the fruit, he knew that wasn't an apple. You might fool people for a little while, but once they get a taste of your words, they're going to know what's actually in your heart and you certainly will not fool God. So examine the fruit of your mouth this morning. What does it say about your heart? Do you confess the Lord before men? Are you ever even in a position for the spirit to give you the words to say as you glorify God with your witness or are you just putting that lamp over the or uh, the bowl over the lamp? Are you playing games with unbelief in your heart because you figure you'll repent and confess him one of these days? Your words are the fruit of your heart what do they say let's pray thank you father for uh, your word sometimes it's heavy upon our shoulders as we read it but the good news is that whenever we repent whenever we confess sin to you whenever we we come throwing ourselves upon the mercy and the grace of jesus what we're going to find again and again is that your yoke is easy and your burden is light i pray for folks this morning who may not know you lord and i pray that they would turn to you that they would repent of their sin and turn to you that today would be the end of of self today would be the end of the striving and that they would lay it all down and surrender and that a faith would be born in their hearts that would move to their lips, and that they would confess you boldly in this world. For brothers and sisters here this morning who might be feeling a little sheepish, if not just full-on convicted about a lack of confession, a lack of proclamation in their lives, I pray they would not be paralyzed by sorrow, but again, they would be compelled to repentance, to have godly sorrow, and to start this new week tomorrow with a renewed Determination to share the truth of your word with people and to trust you, Holy Spirit, to give the words to say. And so use your word in the hearts of your people this morning. Transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.